I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan and I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he's been cured by Dr. Yee. It's Andy Greenwald. Yo, Chris. No more itching. You know, Chris, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. We're going to talk about Night Off. We're going to talk about Get Down. We're going to talk about Rogue One trailer. I'm going to yell at you about a band from the 90s. But I didn't know you were going to start with Dr. Yee. <laughs> and I got to, this, you know, our podcast steering into a confessional mode as we get closer to each other in both emotional and, and physical proximity i have no idea where this that's is my life do you know that what that you like that is do you got itchy feet I, my feet are tremendous and always <laughs> have been thank you but i i i buy the 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 herbal powders and i drink them with with water with i spoon you I, do I stir them not with a spoon and drink them do you really do. yeah i do you know that wow maybe you didn't know that i didn't know every that. day man that's why i'm that is why I am the paragon of health that you've always known me to be. You are perpetually suffering from an oncoming or exiting sinus uh, infection. And no, see, you Chris, are always tired. Chris. Chris. <laughs> yeah. Two things. I'm always tired when I talk to you because I'm just trying to tell you something. <laughs> but the I used to have sinus infections. That used that was my jam, right? And then I found my own Dr. Yi. And I'm 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 an Adonis man. I'm a mountain. This stuff works. Uh-huh. So all you haters out there who Who's are like hating? that was really convenient uh- that Doc, <laughs> that John Stone got his feet fixed just in time for trial because you know he 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 went out on a limb. He went to a faith healer or or maybe it was just for comedic effect. No no no. I'm telling you as co-host of the watch. I we we support many products on the show now. I support Doctor E. I stand with Doctor E. <laughs> Um, we're obviously going to talk. Let's talk about the night of now. Uh, can, can we talk more about herbal remedies? Or well, is that, here's the thing is that people who, so for one thing, I just want to say pride comes before the fall. And if I had just been cured of such chronic long running eczema, I think right. that I would be like, let me get two weeks of clean living under my belt before I went back totally. to my support group and started hanging on the rim like Vince Carter on Frederick Weiss. You know what I mean? Like, and just I think that's a great point. <laughs> like, I appreciate the fact that that Stone was was trying to spread the gospel, the Doctor Yi herbal gospel. But I do, I just feel like he really quickly hit the floor shimes. You know what I mean? Well, I think you're right, and I think he also. I think it was a pretty aggressive move to return to your therapy support circle and just choose a seat on the other side of everyone in the circle and stare at them. Yeah, and just mock them with your shoes. I mean, the, you know, if we're just talking about the semiotics of that room, that's not that's not helpful. I feel like that's just a bad idea. It's. Just, it was just. It was a tough look. I guess was that the was that the scene that I saw at the end of the credits that Steve Buscemi's brother was in this episode. Was was he in the support group? Oh yeah, he was the guy who looked kind of like Steve Buscemi in the yeah, support that's group. Like, I th- then I because the problem with it is that I realized that like half the people on the night of kind of look like Steve Buscemi's brother. Oh, that that was actually the casting. That's what went out <laughs> from the casting department. They were like, find us Steve Buscemi's brother, and they're like, for which scene? And they're they were like, like, literally all of them. Just let's Doesn't just matter. start, and we'll tell you when to stop. Um, <laughs> just keep them, keep them coming. So, Andy, I wrote a thing this exactly morning right. for The Ringer about last night's episode of the Night of Samson and Delilah, episode six. Hey, Only eight episodes this season. Yeah, just, I'm, look, we will all be recappers in, uh, in Hillary Clinton's well, America. Um, welcome, welcome. 
And my thing was was basically like crime shows can do a lot of different things, but at the end of the day, they have to. They have, if I can, if I can quote myself, can I do that? They, everybody has to I've come been back on the show for years. Come back to the table and play play a game of Clue at the end of the day, and you got to find yes. Mr. Mustard. Is it Colonel Mustard or Mr. Mustard? I mean, he's been. I think he was uh, discharged. Actually, I'm so sorry, Mr. Mr. Mustard. Mustard is my herbalist. If you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, DJ DJ Mustard, Doctor Dijon, um, <laughs> and uh, and so at the end of the day, they're gonna have the 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 Zay- Steve Zalian and Richard Price are just they're pros, and HBO is still a television network, and this can't just be a prose poem about um, the wonders and nightmares of New York City. So yeah. Uh, you had kind of alluded to this with the chasing Dwayne Reed into the night and, and kind of like mm-hmm. it, it started to become like a little bit more of a crime show. They turned into that quite a bit this mm-hmm. this episode. That being said, and eczema aside, I I thought it it was interesting, you know, that they did it with such gusto that, that they had um, the hearse driver straight up be the Zodiac killer, you know, and that, yeah. and that they... That Don Taylor, my man Paul Sparks from from House of Cards, shout out to to God's Cauldron and Scorpio, his great works of fiction. Um, that he was so like, oh, of course he's he's chronically, you know, taking gray ladies for a ride on the on on the money train there. Yeah, the 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 ending every episode with a new red herring or lead is is not my favorite thing. It's very broad um, church. It's exactly Broadchurch, yeah, and and I think that what's interesting about the show is what you said exactly. These are pros, and they're doing the best possible version of this. And for a lot of people who don't watch British crime shows, they might not be familiar with some of the some of the rhythms of the storytelling. Which I think, as you just said, this is this is a lot like Broadchurch. This was based on a British TV show, so it's following a lot of those beats. It's just in many ways the best and or most New York uh, version of this show possible. Um, you know, you 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 took the extreme position of quoting yourself on the ringer.com. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little more demure, and I'm gonna quote our friend Sean Fennessy, who had an excellent excellent piece on the TV corner today, um, talking about what what, what to his mind are the three best shows of the summer, or at least the most interesting. And, and he wrote about um, Mr. Robot, The Get Down, and Stranger Things. He basically, I think everyone should read this piece. I think he's right on about a lot of stuff. But he basically says what separates Mr. Robot from the Get Down and Stranger Things is that the Get Down and Stranger Things are doing, are trying, are, are working within established um, uh, frameworks for TV shows in 2016. And Mr. Robot is, whether it's working for you or not, is sort of aggressively breaking that mold. The Night of it isn't in his piece, but it would definitely be in the former category, right? Because this is not reinventing anything. It's just that the details of the margins, as we've said many times, the kind of stuff that we love in crime fiction elevates the material. Yes. The performances elevate the material. The little montage of jury selection elevates the material. The little stuff that most shows don't even think about, such as your choice of clothing in in court and how you get access to it. Um, This is all elevating the material. That said, this week's episode, I think, was the most... In some way, I, I, there's no way to say this without it sounding overly negative, but I was going to say the most disappointing because of the degree of familiarity some of it had. And not just familiarity, um, coincidence or cuteness um, or TV-ness. Yeah, I mean, I'm too in the him. bag for this show, but I, I choose to look at it almost as like the disappointment is coming from the knowledge that it's wrapping up. And whenever yeah. you have to wrap something like this up, you're going to have to 
do the work. You're going to have to eventually put somebody, you know, and, and I think that there are still twists that could come from this show. I haven't watched episode seven, you know, I, I, so I have no, I have no knowledge, but I, I don't think it will be as cut and dry as like someone gets arrested for the crime and Nas is let out. That just doesn't feel like the world they've set up. Well, also, one of the interesting things about the show, with, with that, one of the interesting things that the show has done that I appreciate very much is that it has smudged up Nas quite a bit. I mean, obviously, he's smudging himself. He's going yeah. to great pains to smudge himself. I, did, I personally I did not know chess pieces could produce ink. If you look, you know, no, but you know, even if someone had wanted to show me that and I would have been like, no way, I still wouldn't have then thought the next step would be, you know, I haven't even begun opening arguments in my trial yet, but I'm going to have the word sin tattooed on my knuckles <laughs> because that's just, that's just a winning look yeah. for a guy yeah. who wants to be thought of as innocent. Um, you know, that, that was a little extreme. You, you, you mentioned the Chandra's interview with the Zodiac killer in the beginning. That was straight up law and order where he's just like let me do my work while we talk, you know? And it, it was super creepy. It was very well shot. It was yes. very effective. But it also felt very much like a different show, one that one that I might be interested in, but I don't think I was as interested in it as I am in, 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 in the show that had to this point been built up around it. Similarly, like, Nas's dad being the delivery guy, mm-hmm. I gotta say, the odds of that are pretty small. You know, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of delivery guys, seamless, very popular service here in New York City. I feel like that's... Uh, that's unlikely. Yeah, um, and, and they didn't need it. They didn't need that one. It's it is it, it does. So I want to talk a little bit about. We've been talking about the the sin tattoo, but the part of the show that has been dealing with the, the prison plot, and and I I feel like every week I am more and more sort of mesmerized by Michael Kenneth Williams' turn as, as Freddy. It, mm-hmm. it is at once. You you feel a lot of compassion for him as a character, but at the other on the other hand, you definitely feel like he is Satan, um, both symbolically and possibly literally. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's such an interesting like this is I think what makes this show so unique is that in any other context, Freddie would be um, a very limited character, you know, and the you would have a lot more clarity or a lot less clarity about his intentions. Either he would be seemingly good and then betray Nas in in a sense, or sort of, you know, like basically like turn him into a drug mule, which is what he did. Or he would be seemingly bad, but reveal himself to be good. And the reason why Richard Price is Richard Price and why Steve Zalian is Steve Zalian is that that isn't happening. That he is just mm-hmm. both a good and a bad person who is sort of, playing with an entirely different deck of moral cards than anybody else because like he says he's just like what's another life sentence so well if there's no punishment for him then like like he says sweet can be found anywhere you know that's the, that's the classic weebay move right like yeah. just just tack another body on in exchange for a good sandwich mm-hmm. um I, I think that the 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 freddy character to my mind represents the show's one major um, missed opportunity thus far, which is the nature of their relationship was pretty interesting when Freddie said, when he said, why me? And Freddie was basically like, because you're not an idiot, you know, yes. and I'm not an idiot. Right. And I need someone to be smart. Um, since they had that conversation, Nas has pretty much just been an idiot uh, or a prick. And I miss, you know, to maybe be fair, it doesn't seem like the, the kind of place that really allows for, 
not you, you know what i mean like jail makes you do dumb things i think yeah but you don't think there's like a there's no room for a little like oprah's book club you know what i mean like on the weekends i just i just mean like i i would like to see more of that relationship when the stakes aren't as high as they are or when the heroin isn't being smoked or whatever just because that was that was raised as the reason why they were getting along and i, and I also frankly i'd like to be reminded of some of Nas's good characteristics and i and i imagine this is a choice they made because he was so bumbling and apparently angelic when he appeared that they've just been sort of smudging him up and, and pushing him down since then so that's probably a storytelling choice they couldn't have it both yeah ways, but i think that you know a little y- bit of that back. you mentioned sean's piece and and the the piece is actually largely about uses of realism in modern television and like post golden age television and how a lot of those golden age shows whether it was sopranos or deadwood or the the wire or mad men or breaking bad even were largely about they were rooted in realism and i think that the night of is very mm-hmm. much rooted in process but it's not necessarily rooted in realism it's a heightened realism it's a very yes uh specially dramatized it, realism it, except for the stuff about dr yee which is a thousand percent true. <laughs> That's a, that's a fucking documentary right there, dog. But I think that what you have to understand is like that's Rikers, and it is, and they are doing very much like that's how you get to Rikers. This is how your process getting yep. into Rikers. This is how commissary cars work at Rikers. But Rikers is hell, and he is finding out that um, I think the reason why he's getting tattooed, the reason why he's doing push-ups, the reason why he's participating in all this stuff, out, besides out of just like a sheer act of survival is that this guy is finding a family and an identity, even if it's a twisted, fucked-up one. Um, yes, I and... think the, the key line from last night's episode was, and I'm, I'm going get it, to get it a little bit wrong, but it was, it was basically like, wasn't it, were you happy or did you miss your old life? Wasn't there some line like that? Did you like your that life? Freddie asked him. Did you like did your you life? Did you like your life? And, yeah. And I think that is a... Did you draw a bright line around that, around that, that piece of dialogue? Because... You know, if you it it really allows you to go back and consider the first half of the first episode, where, you know, it obviously in many ways that would seem idyllic now, but you know he was tutoring guys on a basketball team who didn't want to be tutored. He was desperate to get to a party, desperate to meet anyone. It didn't it didn't seem like he was quote unquote alive in any real way. And we learned that there was some hardship and some difficulty and apparently some violence in his past. So. That's kind of an interesting notion that, you know, all of a sudden now his, the stakes are higher. He's he, he's been accepted in some rough fashion. So that's an interesting idea, too. But as you also said, this is a show essentially about process and about the legal maneuverings and machinations of this one case. So everything that we like about it, from Nas's psychological state to the little bits of New York that, that shine through, those are almost secondary to the process. And mm-hmm. as the show steers into the final two episodes which will i imagine be entirely about wrapping things up then yes so so but it's a balance and you know the on balance it's been really really good i mean i I, i'm looking forward to what's to come i'm gonna miss these characters much more than i even thought i would i even miss those those hellacious red eczema scars i mean i really felt like they were part of the family (laughs) at this point um okay let's take a quick break and then we'll we'll get back and we'll talk about the get down Hey guys, just want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors like the Black Tux. Do you guys have a wedding or a special event coming up and you need a tux, like now? Don't panic. The Black Tux designs modern fit suit and tuxedo rentals that deliver straight to your door. And now... 
the Black Tux will give you free home try-on so you can see the fit and feel the quality of their suits before your event. The best part? You can do it all online. Head to theblacktux.com to create your look or choose a complete outfit package. The prices start at just $95. Their suits are designed with fine Italian wool, the highest quality on the rental market, and their customer care team is always available to answer questions. Your outfit will arrive a full week before your event, and that leaves plenty of time to try it on, and if the fit needs to be dialed in, the Black Tux will fix any problems before your event. When your event's over, you just drop the rental back in the mail. Shipping is always free both ways from delivery to return. Visit theblacktux.com slash BSPN and experience a new way to rent. That's theblacktux.com slash BSPN. Hey guys, just want to tell you a little bit about Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients taste better and are better for you, so it's important to know where your food comes from. I've been using Blue Apron for a couple of years now, and I can tell you, for me, it's completely eliminated the anxiety that I used to have about I have to go to the supermarket, make sure I have all the right ingredients, get out of there, and at the end of the day, you're going to get home, you're going to make chicken or spaghetti anyway. I mean, really, there's no variety, there's no spice to that. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms and fisheries across the United States. As a result, the seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. The beef is raised humanely, the chickens are free range, the pork is raised naturally, and regenerative farming practices are used for the produce. What does all that mean? It means it tastes good. It means it tastes better than the stuff you're buying in plastic wrap. Blue Apron can be delivered to 99% of the continental United States and 99.5% of food deserts. Because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for recipe, they're reducing food waste. They're also making your home life a little bit better. Cooking together builds strong family bonds, and research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often. Are you going out all the time, spending money, you get to the end of your meal at a restaurant, and you're like, did I really need to spend this much money on my dinner? No. You know, you can just now spend under $10 per person for a healthy, delicious meal with Blue Apron. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family, family-run family farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. Some of the meals available in August are mouthwatering. Spiced pork burgers with goat cheese and cucumber corn salad, summer vegetable and quinoa bowls with fairy tale eggplant, shishisto peppers, and corn, chicken tinga tacos with summer squash and tomato salsa. All of those sounds wonderful. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash the watch. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash the watch. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, Andy, so this week on Friday, well, on Friday, uh, Netflix released uh, six episodes, I believe, of a mm-hmm. promised 13, I believe. Is I, that... I mean, there are a lot of promises and a lot of numbers involved in well, this Well, this is show, what we're going to so get to. Feel so free to throw some more out. We're talking about Netflix's original series, The Get Down, which is largely, uh, or at least credited to, um, Basil, Basil Lerman, who is the director of Romeo and Juliet, and Moulin Rouge, and Australia and the great Gatsby as notoriously uh, maximalist, let's just say, with yes. his with this process. Uh, his projects tend to go over budget. His projects tend to get variety and Hollywood Reporter pieces written about them that says, in trouble? Like, production slows on X. 
And this is no different. In fact, it sounds like this was a insanely over budget and and uh, kind of trouble pocked production. It's gone through several showrunners. Lerman eventually took over showrunning himself, although he was admittedly a novice at it. Uh, it moved production from L.A. to New York. If anybody is curious about the production of the show, I, I recommend them to check, they check out this variety feature about um, about the show. Sean Ryan was involved. Uh, Stephen Aldegurgis, who's a sort of noted playwright in New York. He wrote The Motherfucker with the Hat, which Chris Rock performed in on Broadway, I believe. He wrote, he's got credit on a bunch of these screenplays. I don't know. I don't know. You know, you don't really know what the final product is, what what, what responsibility he, he has for the he, final product. Nelson George was a part he, of it. Yeah, Stephen Adley-Gurgis and Sean Ryan were the marquee names uh, early on. I think they were bounced early on, um, but due to, you know, the way agents and 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 guilds work like they are, their names are on this yeah capacity, he's but they is still doing interviews where he talks about it as if like he was because he, he gave a very interesting interview about his disappointment with netflix's decision to put it out in the fashion that it did because he was like mm-hmm. you know they they basically were like we have spent too much money on this to not have product we have to put this out so we're gonna put out the first six and they were like but we would have written it differently if we had known you were doing it this way um, so that's that. It's set in 1977 in the Bronx. It is about a group of young people growing up in that neighborhood at a time of incredible poverty and incredible creative expression. Uh, and it is what it says on the package. It's like a kind of fascinating mess, especially the pilot, a 90 minute mini movie that is mm-hmm. part musical, part kind of documentary um i don't know what did you think of the pilot i mean we're gonna i think we're gonna we're gonna keep talking about this show um i think we'll probably limit our conversation to the to the pilot because it's a that's a lot to process you said the word mess that's what this show is it is a occasionally glorious occasionally frustrating often mystifying and to be honest kind of noble mess it is not the previous record holder for the most expensive show on Netflix uh, was Marco Polo. Marco Polo was a was was a mess, and it was also a bloated disaster, and it was boring. This is never really boring. It is more interesting and tries to be tries to do more things than most TV shows do in multiple seasons, and it does this even in the first six minutes of the of the pilot. So. The, I want to put that bracketed around this that I'm pretty interested in this show, even when I found it tough to watch or just or just head scratching. There are moments in that pilot of just breathtaking beauty and ambition. I think I don't know what got into the water over at Netflix in terms of their casting offices, why they have seemed to have access to a pool of talented young actors that no one else has been able to find between Stranger Things and this. It is really considerable. Um, just the you know the, the the scene early on when the kids are after school and they find out that there's a new piece by this brilliant Shall enigmatic yeah. p- potentially superhero graffiti artist and they just talk about they have to go into rival gang territory to find it like that in itself just that idea is kind of like a different alt universe stranger things where the kids go to find you know a phantom piece of graffiti instead of an upside down world with a monster in it um it's but it's it's hard to get it's hard to even consider or talk about the show without 
saying what I feel like a lot of people have been very too polite to even say, which is, was it supposed to be released like this? Like, yeah. is this really the final version? I mean, you said that Kyrgyz said that it wasn't the final version. Was there a final version to be found in this? I don't even know, because it's just I have trouble tracking the chronology of the pilot, and you don't ever really want that to be the case. Yeah, and it has, um, I guess, like at various points over the course of the pilot, I thought it reminded me of almost like Natural Born Killers era Oliver Stone in terms of how both kinetic, kinetic to the point of needing ADD medication, and and there are parts where you're just like, wait, why is this person outside? They were just inside. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like really basic right. filmmaking and and film editing things where you're just like, you just broke the axis or like, you know, the, the, the well, wall can, you're not supposed to break when yeah, you're editing. Can, can, can you can you talk me through just the simple basic timeline of the fact that like in the opening minutes of the show, Zeke, it wants to get with the girl whose name I'm blanking on as we're doing this podcast. But she's like, no, I have to go to a club Mylene, and yeah. flirt with a yeah. Mylene. I have to flirt with a label owner. So we're going to this club. And he's like, oh, no, she's going to the club tonight. And then they go to school, but it's the last day of school? And they still haven't gone to the club? Yeah, so she's like, tonight I'm going to like this club. Yeah, and he's like, I want you to be my girlfriend. And she's like, well, I'm going to this club tonight, and I can't have a boyfriend because I basically need to get out of this this place. And This guy's going to make this happen. Uh, and then there's school and then there's like a kind of convoluted plot about how he needs to steal a record for her that she loves yeah, right that there are only 50 like of but at the same time shaolin is trying to get that same record for grandmaster flash um <laughs> and then they i gotta tell you the pakusa remix of that of that <laughs> of that record is no longer in mint because it gets tossed all over the Bronx throughout yeah. this first episode. I mean, I guess it's, no, it's not really neither here nor there. But, you know, I was reading this variety piece about it. And, and it, there's a passage in the piece about how prior to filming, quote, uh, what became known as the Dojo Room was created, which was an expansive rehearsal space with the show's production offices and stages in Queens, where cast members were taught everything from how to spin turntables a la Grandmaster Flash, to how to break dance with late 70s authenticity. Choreographers work with dancers mm. in the space to perfect many of the production numbers. The musical scenes and the, the dance scenes are mesmerizing. They're gorgeous. And that is clearly mm -hmm. something that Lerman is just like, knows how to squeeze every bit of sweat and emotion and romance from these kind of sequences. But the idea that um, there was a dojo room where... You know, it was obviously a really creative and like intuitive place of learning and expression. That's not how you make like a really like a like efficient show. You know what I mean? Like that's that shows. It feels like sketches from the dojo room on yeah. screen. I mean, and there are parts like where it's like idea. natural born killers. There are parts where it's like literally being acted as if it is on stage like people are like what's that mylene did you say that this guy's coming i yeah. did you know and then like somebody walks on like as if they're walking onto the stage even though it's a huge expensive set i mean i, I think in general i'm not a fan of of baz Luhrmann and his i think you said that right his maximalist tendencies everything is on the level of um uh, he raises everything whether it's um romeo and juliet or whether it's like hugh jackman has like a fur trapper to the level of greek mythology right everything is on everything is on everything is up everything is up to 11 
what's interesting about this and what I appreciate is that that level of myth-making and maximalist storytelling is rarely afforded to African-American stories, or in this case, um, Latin, Latino-American stories, or um, poor stories, to be quite frank. You know, this, it's something that's usually given to fur trappers in Australia or Shakespearean characters or, you know, uh, 1930s swells like in The Great Gatsby. So that's a kind of interesting idea, and it's fun to see that play out, um, to play out in the show. I, but there's, you know, but I, I keep coming up against this, this, this idea that it's just like that. You, you want to go big, you want to go loud, but then you also want to just sit down, Jimmy Smiths, and be like, "What are you doing, man? What are we doing here?" Yeah, you know? yeah. Like, I, and I think that that's the breath. thing is that we are. This kind of goes back to what Sean's talking about is that. For as adventurous as we may think of television, there are very basic rules that it follows. You know, there's an A plot and a B plot. There's establishing shots. There's a pacing that we're all kind of used to. There's even a tone of the acting, because for some reason when we watch it on those particular screens, whether it's on our computer or on our television, we expect a certain kind of performance. And Jimmy Smits is acting the way you would act if you were doing voiceover work for a comic book cartoon. You know what I mean? He's he's they're 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 all playing different. They're playing with form a lot. And it's very exciting to see that they're doing it. But it is in the first episode and by all accounts it gets much more confident in its approach as it goes on so i'm excited Mm -hmm. to talk about this in a a week or two after we've had chance to process a little bit more of the season the first episode is just an example of like you just can't always try stuff on tv and have it work and i mean that purely formally because every single thing about this show uh, to quote martin landau on entourage is is something i would be interested in (laughs) yeah i agree i thought um i thought justin charity's piece on the ringer was 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 right on in this because he likened it in many ways to empire which is which is a kind of like grand pop storytelling that doesn't necessarily have to follow uh process or reality like something like the night of does it's much more intuitive and emotional and extreme in in that it's taking its rhythmic cues more from from the radio and from the music that inspired the show than from formal television storytelling convention and i think you know, I, he he says that it's the most in his piece. He talked about Justin talked said it was the most fun he's had watching TV since season one of Empire. I think season one of Empire was was more fun because it was a lot more confident in what it what it was. But the but I but I the reason I'm I'm eager to keep watching is there is a version of this show that is despite 120 million dollars that Netflix spent, which seems almost impossible, despite all the talent that cycled through it, despite whatever bad blood exists between those involved. There's a version of this that is so much worse, and it's the ver- it's the Narcos version of it. Yes. You know, it's yeah. the version of the show where it's like, and then the DJ put the record on the turntable and scratched it, and lo and behold, I mean that's basically what vinyl was. Yeah, you well, know? I was just gonna say it's, the, the of version of it is vinyl, where it's like, well, we have this story, but we need to have the we need to have the white male avatar who we experience it through. So we can't just right. have it be yeah. punk rock bands in the New York in New York in the mid seventies or a female A and R working in a male dominated industry. It always you have to have the Draper or the Walter White right. character who is the like 
the lens through which we view it. And shout out to the show for not doing that. Shout out to the show for yeah, not exactly. having it be like a, a newspaper man in, in New York City discovers uptown and like writes about it. And like we experience it through his lens. That's great. I'm so glad that's not the case. Exactly. Especially because the 70s, late 70s, early 80s in New York City is one of the most off covered periods and uh, cultural periods in our contemporary culture. And the thing about that book, you know, it's about punk rock and the city being bankrupt in the blackout in late 70s. And this is all fertile stuff that obviously a lot of people are interested in and we're interested in. Um, but it kind of, you know, it picks these characters that are essentially in Manhattan and then they become cultural tourists to the margins. And so for as much as I was, I just made fun of of some of jimmy smith's choices that scene where he's walking through the burned out part of the bronx and he's like this is my place mm -hmm. i see a park here i see a library this is my home that in and of itself is kind of radical for storytelling trying you know for, for this kind of storytelling and certainly for in this cultural milieu so i think i'm i'm into that um i remain unconvinced that Baz Luhrmann was the guy to shepherd it and i believe that netflix probably remains unconvinced as well but at the same time i don't know who else was going to walk into that meeting and be like Sorry, I need you know fifty million more dollars so that my um, red puma DJ superhero can correctly jump off of a yeah, building. Yeah, so that he could like, do parkour through a CGI'd Bronx or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, well, okay, so we've talked about the get down a little bit. Let's let's chat a little bit about um, the Rogue One trailer. Yes. Um, not in, so. Here's what was surprising. It wasn't very different. Than the teaser, it was slightly longer. It had a couple of more like clearer stakes and clearer definition of roles. Where it's like these are the people who are on the good side; they are fighting the people who are on the bad side. These are some of their skills. This are the odds. So you you know why you want to go see this movie if you didn't already, which would be mm -hmm. insane anyway. Um, I want this to be a war movie. I want this to be the Gareth Edwards like insane war movie and i'm i'm feeling very strange about the fact that if you're gonna make if you're gonna have somebody else go in and do reshoots and do <laughs> reworking it that it's the like one of my favorite filmmakers is doing that it's tony gilroy um but it, it was uh it, it didn't really betray any over meddling it's a slightly kinder gentler take on the on the material but i remain very bullish on it yeah i i agree i, I feel equally torn because you read all this stuff about oh you know disney thought it was too grim they want to make it a little happier brighter more fun um you hear they're doing reshoots and that gareth edwards might not even have been invited to be part of the reshoots and then you hear they gave it to tony gilroy and i'm like yeah i want that movie <laughs> like if they gave it to john turtletaub i would have been like free gareth but, <laughs> but exactly. instead i'm kind of like oh okay i'm pretty into this yeah <laughs> Yeah, all of a sudden we're like, yeah, it's a tough business, kid. Get used to it. Get, get, toughen your skin up, Garrett. Yeah, yeah. Um, in a perfect world, well, in a perfect world, you know, we wouldn't have to still be talking about Star Wars. Well, in a perfect later, world, but... Gareth Edwards would be directing a Tony Gilroy script of this, and this is what I was no disrespect is to the other all... people who worked on this script. No, they could all play in their own sandboxes. What I was going to say is that Gareth Edwards could make his Star Wars war movie and uh, Tony Gilroy could make his movie about, um, a, you know, a, a intergalactic fixer who, you know, while driving his land speeder in Tatooine stops when he sees two Jawas looking at him and he gets out of the, the speeder and he goes to the Jawas and the speeder explodes. And then we flash back to the beginning of the movie. But, you know, that 
I just know somewhere, Chris, some deep episode four slash Michael Clayton heads are chuckling. I know they are. Um, the the thing about the the trailer, as much as we're still talking about trailers, when we talked about the the teaser a couple weeks or months ago, like that was a, we felt that was an essentially perfect teaser trailer, and just in terms of the the, the scope, the scale, the way it looked. Once you have the characters start talking and having it be about some MacGuffin and the Death Star, it's, never, it's, it's not going to be as like, majestic and beautiful, but it still looks good. The cast is still bananas, and it, it, it looks fun. Right? I, was, I mean, I don't really know what more people could ask for. Yeah, I was kind of reminded, uh, have you ever seen that movie Mr. Roberts? The Jack Lennon, um, Henry Fonda movie, James Cagney? That, 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 that's a, quite a cast. Yeah. No, I never saw that one. <laughs> it's a, a Joshua Logan play. Uh, from from the, I think the fifties, and it's about a um, bunch of guys, bunch of navy, a navy ship that's on leave um, before they go away to war, and just it's sort of like a dr- dramedy about all these guys. Um, and John Ford directed was supposed to direct it, and he uh, he did do quite a bit of it, but then wound up having a lot of problems with Henry Fonda. I think they got in, like an actual fist fight, and. Mervyn Leroy and Josh Logan came on and did directing. And basically what happened was Ford shot, I think Ford shot a lot of the exteriors and uh, these other guys did the interiors and the sort of the more intimate moments. And I kind of think that that would have worked for this in the beginning. If Gilroy had done all the banter Hmm. in control rooms and Gareth Edwards handled all the Star Destroyer flying over a mountain stuff. You mean, if, you mean if there had been a shot of, like, Mon Mothma being like, oh, my God, that's Darth Vader. <laughs> I need a crisis suite. Yeah. Enhance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Enhance. Yeah, yeah, I, my, here, here's my only other takeaway about this. It's just, like, never let him see you, never let him see you sweat. Like, that's how you get through. Like, I feel like Baz Luhrmann never lost a night's sleep over the fact that he was spending $120 million of Netflix's funny money to make this I think this he show, might have right? been awake, but yeah, he didn't lose any sleep. <laughs> Fair enough. What I'm saying that is... That Dr. Yi, you know what I mean? <laughs> just a little bit of that Dr. Dijon get you through the night. What I'm saying is Disney, and I can speak to Disney because we, you know, we're, old, we're old colleagues. Yeah. You got Star Wars, dog. You have Star Wars. This is the Do second you know L, man. Star yeah. Wars? Everyone loves Star Wars. You successfully brought back something that is essentially unfuckwithable. So you don't need to put Darth Vader in the trailer. That's right. like when people were making bacon sandwiches out of bacon. Like, it's cool, man. It's still Star Wars. Relax. That, the that problem was is that Force problem. Awakens made two bill. So now they're like, that's, those are the stakes now. Those are the, those are the numbers we're playing with. I think that there was a world in which they could be like, we're... We're, we're just trying to establish a, a trust between us and fans and blah, blah, blah. I mean, maybe they always were like, as soon as they broke the story for Force Awakens, they were like, this is going to be the biggest movie ever. And if it's not, we're a fucking bunch of failures. But it does, it, you know, I would say that in a world in which two billion is, is the potential, they can't mess right. around with who the fuck is Felicity Jones? When does this movie take place in the Star Wars timeline? And where is Han Solo? That's a great point. It, because Force Awakens, it was like, one. this is exactly when this movie takes place. These are the stakes, and here is Han Solo. And there he goes. But that's a, but that's a really good point, because I think the initial idea was that the main trilogy would be, the, the new trilogy would be like the main movies, and they would make these, you know, more, per, not personal, because come on, it's still, it's still Star Wars, but 
um, more genre-based side stories. Uh, you know, that's why it's called a Star Wars story. And we would have some that would be more comic, like potentially the new Han Solo movie, and some that would be more grim, like this was going to be a war movie. But I think you're right. As soon as you say to the shareholders or whomever you're beholden to, um, guess what? We have this thing that could make, you know, to bill every time out. Then they're all going to be expected to make as close to that as possible, which probably dilutes the fun of it and dilutes the franchise. But we're not here to concern troll the Walt Disney Company and their stewardship of fucking Star Wars. So, Star yeah. Wars, yeah. fine. Star Wars. Okay. Speaking of nostalgia, why don't you talk about how you went and saw Belly, the band? Not, I just want to say, not the man, great DMX film. No, you know, although that seems weirdly relevant again due to Nas returning to the screen. Um, yeah. Chris, I don't know why you're poo-pooing me here. I'm not poo-pooing you at all, man. I'm just, you, I'm jealous. You love, I'm jealous. You love the great 90s band Belly, Tanya oh. Donnelly Squad. They reformed. <laughs> Did you say uh, Tanya Donnelly Squad? <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that the alternate name for the band before they settled on Yeah, Belly? I think it was uh, It was either Tanya Donnelly Squad or, or Dr. Yee Gang, but that they went with <laughs> Belly. <laughs> you know, history may judge that harshly, that choice. Uh, I was just, I just wanted to say that it was, so they reformed. They're on tour now. Um, it was a very nice moment of like like circle closing to go see a band from the '90s at the Bowery Ballroom. Uh, as I'm leaving the city of New York, where this I used to great. see bands is, in the '90s at the Bowery Ballroom. Quietly emotional. You're you're being very were, flat, but I know that this is very tender. Hold for on, you. let me take a let me take a sip of my latest Doctor Yee concoction. <laughs> mm. It does not taste as bad as Turturro made it out to be. The memory juice, me. yeah. Okay. Um, but what I wanted to say was you and I always rode for the second belly records. The first record, they had some they, they radio hits, right? Like Feed the Tree and Geppetto did well in this weird alt-rock moment. Their second record, um, King, we think, we bonded over that when we first met. We think it's a lost masterpiece. I still think so. When they played Super Connected, I almost lost my mind. Um, but it was very interesting to see this band stripped of its context because we, we've talked a lot about the differences, obviously, from when we were falling in love with music and getting into it and the avenues available to learning about it and, and having it fed to us versus now when you can immediately learn everything about anyone. You can listen to someone's entire catalog in a, in a second. Um, and what I was thinking about when I was watching the show was for as much as we loved our experience learning, you know, getting into music when we were teenagers and the and the and the basically the pipelines that were available to us then because we could hear belly on the radio we could see them on mtv at the same time we were hearing or or you know or listening to i mean I, i'm trying I'm, I'm i don't know what other bands you want to throw out there but everything from like like tricky to radiohead like all came through the same pipe basically but what i was interested in your take on was the fact that did that cause us to not fully quote-unquote get what the band was doing or were we just too young because when i was listening to these belly songs now 20 years later it was pretty interesting pretty radical songwriting she was doing these big glammy hooks but the lyrics were very very um very strongly feminist lyrics about things that most songs are not really about like childbirth and motherhood and things like that and maybe it's because i was 17 and wasn't paying attention or maybe it was because when it all got pushed through the same pipe you were like oh that song about the tree bangs let's on let's go on to the next song do you know what i'm do you know what i'm going with here here's what i remember and i think i'm going to answer you in a roundabout way I remember That's good, I when I roundabouted you on that question. I remember when it was so. I remember when King wait Star is the second one. Uh, King uh, is Star the is the first one. one. King yeah, is the so King. I remember when King was about to come out, 
and the the you have to understand that in much the same way that the the stakes for Star Wars movies now are in the this, these astronomical figures, there was a roulette wheel that bands could spin, and if they hit it, could be Soundgarden, and that was like a big fucking <laughs> deal. Like there was potential for all these small bands. And I remember when that record was coming out, the line on it was like, "This, they they did it. They took a shot because they went to Apache mm-hmm. Studios and they cleaned up their sound and they... Yeah, and uh, Johns produced it. Yeah, and they've really, like, this is, th- there's hooks and there's singles and they're going to do it and this is it. And it's like, there are a bunch of cool, it's like a cool girl band that's going to really break through. And you listen to Super Connected, which is a absolute banger today as much as it was the first time I played it and it is murky and weird and it has a long Mm -hmm. bass only atmospheric (laughs) intro and the video is a black and white video in which Tanya Donnelly pretends to be her own guitar tech right (laughs) you're making a strong case here yeah and you're just like who thought that this was going to be a hit you know what I mean and and I guess and then you know I think I might get my chronology wrong here in which case I'll put my hands up but like and then Veruca Salt came through and was just like that's that's our money you know for 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 that brief period of time that Seether was was happening um I'll be curious to see whether I'm right on that but the point being is that's what I remember about that music is just like the anticipation that would build up around those bands. And you're right. I don't think I actually, I need to go back and listen because I don't know what that stuff sounds like devoid of that context as it works yeah, today. I think the context, I mean, I, I, I was having a conversation at that show with a friend who we were talking about, um, like Fiona Apple's first record, you know, is now 20 years old. And I am, I was so prejudiced against that record because I decided, or the narrative was that she she was on a major label, so this yes. was some sort of corporate performance. Yes, um, which was such an absurd opinion to have about anything, to be honest, especially that record or about her. Um, I think your Veruca Salt chronology is off because I think Seether was ninety four, so it came after Belly's first record. But then I think ninety six, ninety seven is when they both made big glam rock records to be like, oh no, we're rock band, and then America was like, nah, pass. Right, we don't want woman fronted rock band right now. So uh, we're gonna Seether start came out in 94. The single was... Yeah, we're going to start buying the cores instead. Yeah, but, and then Veruca Saw went out on tour with Hole. Okay, that's right. So, all right, never mind me. I don't know what I'm talking about. No, but I, but it, it was it was interesting to realize that when things... Veruca this, Salt put out the, an EP called Blow It Out Your Ass. It's Veruca Salt in 1996. Yeah. I love Veruca Salt. I love, those two, they're amazing. They're wonderful ladies. Um, oh, what a world. But, and they're back together and put out a really good record, too. But I, I guess I, it was it was interesting to consider that for as much for as bright as the spotlight was when there was really only one stage, it was also um, that that light could sort of blanch everything into the same tone. And you kind of just took it as it was. So that's why Feed the Tree will show up and sound pretty good on like a alt-hits of the 90s album. Sure. Stripped of its context. So it was kind of cool to see them. And Veruca Salt do this too last year when they were on tour. Basically reclaim the context. Um, anyway, this is a longer conversation. One of the, a, a buddy of ours who was at the show with me, Will Chef, who's from Ockerville River, who also has a new good, great album coming out, officially extended and the And does the music for, for uh, have... Any Given Wednesday. What's Any Given Wednesday? Is that a show? <laughs> It's it's the night. It's, it's three or four HBO nights show. before Come the on. night of. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. We we still. I still hope that someone will let us do. Um, you know, uh, 
any Thursday morning so we can recap it. <laughs> but yeah, Will did the music for Bill's show. Um, he he is very keyed up to have this conversation about 90s versus 2000s music. So we will have that in a month or two. I'm looking forward to it. But basically, go see Belly if they're in your town. Go listen to King. Rediscover it or discover it for the first time. It's really good. And Chris, um, there's no re-up this week because I'm moving across the country to um, be with you, my man. I cannot wait. I can't wait for this bants to be happening in person. Tate can't wait. Joe can't wait. The Ringer can't wait. L.A. can't wait. Uh, it's going to be great. Do, do you think I'm going to have any trouble with my powders and tinctures and getting them through customs? <laughs> do I have to go through customs to fly to California? Yeah. You act like you didn't come here like 13 times this year already. 13? Come on, man. This is uh, 15. 15 times. But this is a different one-way ticket, dog. Let's see what happens. Uh, I have, can't wait to, to start giving you some tattoos. <laughs> I can't wait either. I've got some really good ideas. Talk to you next week, Dr. Dijon. Have a great move. Doctor on one hand, ye on the other. <laughs> exclamation point. See you next week, Brett. <laughs>